Hands up. Thanks for the welcome. It's great to be here. For Jean and I, we, we feel the reality and sincerity of your worship, and it's a great privilege to join in. I'm going to read from God's Word. Last week we looked at the conversation between God and Moses and all the excuses he put up for not serving God. And today we're going to have a look at Pharaoh and what he said about God in Exodus chapter 5. If you've got a Bible with you, Exodus chapter 5. Uh, we'll read the whole chapter, it's a good chapter. The headline here is Bricks Without Straw. The, Egypt, the Egyptians had made the Hebrews their prisoners and they were working as slaves in the great uh, store cities of Python and Ramesses, probably during the, the pharaoh ships, if there's such a word in the English language, of Sethos I or Ramesses II about three and a half thousand years ago. So here we are. Afterwards Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, This is your text for today. Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and foremen in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. But require them... He's a nice guy, Pharaoh, isn't he? Um, <laughs> let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They're lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the foremen went out and said to the people, This is what the Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people got, scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. The Israelite foremen appointed by Pharaoh's slave drivers were beaten and were asked, Why didn't you meet your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite foreman went and appealed to Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, Make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, Lazy. That's what you are. Lazy. That is what you keep saying. Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite foremen realized they were in trouble when they were told, You are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. 
When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, May the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name? He has brought trouble upon this people. And you have not rescued your people at all. Well, he was some boss Pharaoh, wasn't he? Give it a boss like that. I doubt it. <laughs> well, here's a guy, Pharaoh, and he's not a nice man at all. And he asks a question. It's a key question. It's a question relevant in a non-Christian society that waits to be convinced. Now, we're in a non-Christian society now. And we've got to face it. There's a guy on the, the television this morning, and Andrew Marshall, he said that um, he was talking about a man who was greater than Jesus Christ. Did you hear that this morning? Oscar Wilde, he said, was greater than Jesus Christ. That's the kind of nation we're in just now. And focusing, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And people like Will Graham are going about telling folk who the Lord is and God's blessing him um, on Friday night and Saturday night and Sunday night too in the mercy of God. And God even changed the weather yesterday. It was filthy in the morning. We're praying that the rain would stop. And it cleared up and they got a good night last night mainly. As far as I know, I wasn't in Falkirk last night. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? A key question from a pagan ruler, relevant in a non-Christian society that waits to be convinced. And there are three issues here that I can see. First of all, does God exist? Secondly, what is he like? And thirdly, where do I fit in? There's, that'll keep us going for a wee while, eh? Um, does he exist? There's all sorts of arguments for the existence of God. There's a rational argument that wherever you go in the world, people worship. Why is that? You know, I mean, Leslie Hogarth, who worked for over 30 years in Peru, one of the Peruvian uh, Quechua people who are the descendants of the ancient uh, peoples of Peru, came up to him and gave him, he was going away home in furlough and he came up with reverential hush and gave him this stone, si senor it breathes, he says to him he believed this thing was a living thing and there are people in the world um, who worship, they worship stones they worship mountains they worship man made temples um, the need for worship there and the argument goes why is it that people have this built-in need for worship? That's a rational argument. Therefore, there must be a God. Second argument is a natural one. Seeing design, the famous uh, example of a man called Paley, who said, if you're walking on the beach and you pick up a watch, you find this watch, you pick it up, you say, look at that lovely strap in that watch. And there's a nice face on it as well. And there's, there's wee, wee, wee 
uh, arms going round the watch and you, you take the back off there's all these workings inside somebody must have designed that and that's the argument from design you look at the world <coughs> if we're a wee bit nearer the sun we get cooked if we're a wee bit further away we get frozen God has placed us exactly where he wants us <laughs> the climate is generally very good isn't it really um, it's wonderful to think the right proportion of land and sea there's not that there's a shortage of food in the world there's a shortage of the distribution of food in the world um, that's the trouble because we're so selfish greedy um, and it's just wonderful to think how God has placed this world he's got the camps once you've got the camps he's got the car park about halfway up and see the valley of the Blaine before you absolutely beautiful then a wee waterfall coming down the camps it's absolutely smashing in fact a lot of my pals used to take their girlfriends up places like that <laughs> it's beautiful God has given us a beautiful world and then think about water when you heat a substance it expands when you cool it it contracts but let me tell you in case you didn't know about the anomalous expansion of water at 4 degrees celsius did you know about that and you've lived all these years <laughs> and you don't know um, if that didn't if that happened uniformly that when you heat water and you cool water it expands when you heat and, and contracts when you cool all the rivers of the world will be frozen up in the winter. And the scientists have found that at 4 degrees Celsius there's an unusual, anomalous expansion of water. And that stops the rivers getting frozen up. God is so wonderful. Ever seen a butterfly? Beautiful butterfly. You think, is the God of the microcosm, is the God of the microcosm. Um, there's design in this world and he hasn't exhausted himself in creation it says in Psalm 19 the heavens are the work of his fingers God was just tinkering you know <laughs> let's make the moon and uh, all the planets and all that he was just tinkering the final work was the sending of his son the Lord Jesus Christ to grace this earth with his wonderful presence what a God the rational argument there's a natural argument there's a scriptural argument the Bible doesn't prove that God exists the Bible assumes God exists right from Genesis chapter 1 in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and then in Hebrews chapter 11 there's a fantastic grandiose description it says um, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible wonderful isn't it and this cynic said to the wee girl the Bible's a load of rubbish lass and she said how do you make that out he said well look at that story of Jonah swallowing the whale a daft story she said wait a wee minute it was the whale that swallowed Jonah um, <laughs> And how could you possibly prove that? She said, simple, when I go to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. <laughs> she said, what if Jonah's not in heaven? Well, you can ask him. She <laughs> God 
words as existence in the Bible is assumed, not proven. Uh, we see it around you blind in Scotland. Are you blind? Can you not see the evidence of God's wonderful creation all around you? Well, that's question one. Does he exist? Um, the second one is, what is he like? This God. A lot of the gods are fickle. You know, how can a God tell somebody to cut off somebody's hand? He's, he's not a vicious, capricious, backbiting sort of God at all. He's a kindly God. And here were a slave people in Egypt. When will they ever get out? They're under the greatest organizational nation that's ever been known. Professor Kenneth Kitchen says, So organized were the Egyptians, they had 702 gods. I don't know why I didn't chop off the two. You know, but there were 702 gods. If Kenneth Kitchen says it, I believe Kenneth Kitchen. He knew his stuff. And he was a Christian as well. But 702 gods covered everything, you know. The god of all sorts of things. 702 gods. And the worshippers, the ordinary folk couldn't get into the temples. You had to be a priest to get into the temples. They were so exalted above the ordinary people. Um, they were away far above the restless world that was below. Um, and here, God's the friend. God's the friend of the Hebrews. And he looks after them. And he delivers them. In a remarkable way. In a sequence of events that you can explain scientifically in terms of the sequence, the kind of things that happen as a result of one plague, another plague arises and so on. But they're God's organization of progressive deliverance until he delivers them after the death of the firstborn and they get out of Egypt. He's a kindly God. He's a kindly God. We saw last week, um, he's a living God present with his people, he spoke to Moses alive, out of the bush that wouldn't be burned out remember? He's Yahweh is the, the, the God of creation he's a God of crisis you can come to him in any crisis and God will answer your prayer he may say yes, he may say no he may say wait a wee while um, he may say, wait a big while. We had a lady in Inverness. Oh, what a wonderful lady she was. Amelia Macbeth. She took about Inverness with a basket full of stuff that she handed out every day. She was a pastor's wife. And she was, she prayed for her son. He went away from God and he became, he was a consultant surgeon in Winnipeg. And he wrote her a letter. And the letter was that he'd come back to the Lord. And he was full of thanks to God that he'd forgiven him and that the Lord Jesus Christ was his saviour. Well, you know what Amelia did? <laughs> she got on a plane and went to Winnipeg. She was 98 years old, by the way. And she went on her own. And she saw her son. And her son eventually came back to Scotland. Um, amazing. He's a living God. He's present with his people. He hears and answers prayer. We'll talk about that later. But he was a holy God as well. A fire phenomena. 
the whole uh, ethos of glory in the scriptures glory means weightiness in Hebrew it means the weightiness of a king weighed down by his splendor his jewels and his crown and all that sort of stuff amazing God is a holy God um, it's, there's glory, there's the fire phenomena there's surely people take off your shoes from off your ground um, the Hebrew text wonder for the, for the ground you standing upon it ground of holiness is <laughs> it's holy ground it's separate from sin, there's a negative side to holiness it means separation from sin the verb behind it means to cut or to sever it's separation from sin God is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity holiness has a positive side to it De- dedication to purity is a positive side that's why he calls us to be a holy people a holy people who follow a holy God he's a kindly God, he's a loving God he's a holy God he's a powerful God Yahweh um, the God of creation the God of crisis the God of covenant you can rely on him, on him at all times and the Lord Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever he's not a fickle God you can rely on him an amazing God he's a powerful God the God of crisis the God of covenant you can rely on him at all times what is he like? And he's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I got a pair of socks yesterday. <laughs> and we opened the parcel, you know what they said inside? The best dad in the world. What a load of rubbish. <laughs> the best dad in the world. You know? I'm not the best dad in the world. I'll tell you the best dad in the world is God. You know, the Lord Jesus minted a new word in the lips of Christians. Abba. Dear daddy. (laughs) As we kids in Israel called their father Abba. You don't even need teeth to say it. (laughs) Abba. (laughs) Dear daddy. He's the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here in his love, not that we love God, John says, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the means of offering mercy to sinners. That's what propitiation means. Means of offering forgiveness to sinners. Isn't that wonderful? He's a powerful God. Better still. Um, Third point, where do I fit in? Does he exist? What is he like? He can meet you in your needs. Today, where do I fit in? Well, first of all, you've got the capacity to respond. You know, I've told you this one before. If you fill these light bulb areas with potatoes and switch them on, they'll not go on. They don't have the potential to give light. God has made us in our own image, in his own image. We're sinners, we're rotten, we're heading for hell. We're, we're dead in trespasses and sins and he wants to be our saviour we've got the capacity to respond to him the God 
who made the light shine out of darkness, Paul says, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's possible for all of us. God can shine in our hearts, maybe for the first time today. There's a capacity to respond. There's the evidence to respond. The evidence is in Christ's life. And the evidence is in Christ's people. There was a man came up from Hartford, eh, sorry, Hartlepool. He came up to work in the pit. Eh, what's the other, not at uh, the Ockham Gear pit, what's the other pit? In the Cardowan. He did work in Cardowan. He couldn't get hospitality. And there's a man called John Greenshields, his father Jimmy, was a miner all his days. And Jimmy and his dear wife, Jeannie, took this guy from Hartlepool and you know what he said to me he said after three months of living in their house I could do nothing else but give my life to Christ they were so lovely in the way they treated one another and the way they treated me and this man went out to Jaya, became a missionary became the field director for the regions beyond missionary union in Jaya. that is uh, it used to be Dutch New Guinea. And uh, because he saw Christ in that old couple. We've got the evidence to respond in Christ's life. We've got the evidence in Scripture. We've got the evidence <coughs> in Christ's people. And I've met some folk like that. You know, my church, their church section in Edinburgh can hardly bite his own finger now he's in his 90s he's one of the finest Christians I ever met wonderful man Jack Spears great man I fit in because I've got evidence in front of my very eyes where do I fit in there's the capacity to respond and the responsibility to respond nearly finished honest Acts 17.30 is an amazing verse. Acts 17.30. The responsibility is squarely on our shoulders. In the past, God overlooked while he's talking about. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. I've been dealing with that. An image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But every word is loaded but now he commands all people everywhere to repent we've got the responsibility what does repent mean? it means change your mind and it means change your direction repentance is turning right round about and going the opposite direction going God's way instead of mine moving towards Christ in faith and trust amazing We've got the responsibility, the responsibility to respond to God. God has commanded all men everywhere. He commands, present tense, all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Jesus isn't a dead hero. He's a living, risen, ascended Lord of glory. And we should fit in to God 
by turning to him the Lord Jesus Christ our wonderful saviour and so he calls us today to turn to this God to turn to God the Father to trust in God the Son to rely on God the Holy Spirit I read a new description of the Holy Spirit this week I was reading, I'm reading a, a big heavy book oh it's murder but it's terrific stuff by a man called B.B. Warfield over 600 pages I'm over 300 pages into it and he's talking about the Holy Spirit he calls him the executor of the Trinity the executor of the Godhead he brings things into life and action the Holy Spirit we can be born again by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit can open up scripture to us and we can know the light of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the Holy Spirit is there to commend Christ to us he's the shy, I call him the shy member of the Trinity that he, he works to, to reveal and bring Christ as a reality in our lives every day and make us more like Jesus we're transformed Paul says by it's like gazing into a mirror he says and being, and being uh, transformed metamorphosed is the Greek term uh, metamorphosed into the same image that we see in the mirror even as by the spirit of the Lord he says that's the Holy Spirit's work in our lives Let's pray together. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? O oh Lord, we thank you for the reality of your being, for the wonderful care behind your creation, for the lives that you have given us. We give you thanks for the world we're living in. We give you thanks to be your witnesses in that. And we thank you for the new life promised to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Through his cross and passion and resurrection, you give us hope even beyond death and hope for each day. So bless your dear people in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.